0: Lord today. We appreciate all of you coming out. It's good to have Carrie, correct, with us this morning. And of course, the great thrill of the day is to have Jake and Jacqueline back with us and little Hayden, safe and secure. Amen. Praise God for that. We're just so thankful that God has answered prayer. And we do thank you for all of your prayers and support. And I know that they deeply appreciate the financial gifts that you were able to give to help them in their challenges with the transportation and they still have a number of challenges ahead of them so please be in prayer about that also remember that this wednesday we do not have wednesday night because of the friday evening good friday service so we hope to be able to see you then and also don't forget we are trying to have a significant work day on the 30th uh, again, if you can only come and do one job and then leave, that's fine. Well, we've got a ton of stuff we need to get done. Also, if you say, Pastor, I can't be here that day, but I could come out and do a project a different day. There's a number of projects could be done by one person, and we could get that done. So we just pray that you would uh, keep that in your in your mind. We're in the book of Matthew again, and we're going to read verse 1 through 12, and then I will... Uh, move on from there okay let's let's read it together i'm reading from the new english the english standard version seeing the crowds he went up on the mountain matthew 5 1 and when he sat down his disciples came to him then he opened his mouth and taught them saying blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven And verse 10, 11, and 12 are our focus this morning. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you let's pray oh god our king and father you have graciously extended your mercy to us and letting us gather in your name before you and today lord we stand on the precipice of your bottomless word so much here lord so much richness and depth Please grant through the power of the Holy Spirit that we would not miss what you would have for us us today as a congregation, as well as for individuals. Speak, O God, from your word through your servant, and may every heart be opened, every ear attentive to the things that you would say to us, and we will bless and thank you for it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now, today is Palm Sunday. As you know, the picture of Jesus' triumphal entry behind me. This is the day we celebrate the entry of Christ into Jerusalem and what we call his triumphal entry because it was the fulfillment of prophecy. Next week, of course, we stop and we talk about the resurrection and Christ living and our living in him traditionally pastors and churches take this sunday and next sunday to read those scriptures from the book of John and the later in the gospels where Christ enters the city of Jerusalem and that is the focus of our thoughts and our speaking so it would be perfectly natural for you to be sitting here this morning saying, okay, why are we still in the Sermon on the Mount? This is, this is Palm Sunday. We should be talking about the triumphal entry. Well, I wanted to take a different course and talk to you because here's the premise that I'm making this morning. That what Jesus describes in verse 10 through 12, specifically in Matthew 5, is consistent Jesus describes this as consistent with and characteristic of the Christian faith, and it is being modeled by him in this last week of his life. In other words, Christ says, here's what's going to happen, here's what occurs, and your blessedness is in your willingness to endure persecution, and I'm going to live that out in my last week. Most of us know, and I will get into it directly, where he comes into the city and and the whole city is celebrating, it looks like, when you read the text, and a week later they're all wanting, or the vast majority are wanting him to be killed. So what Jesus describes here in verse 10 through 12 as normal, consistent with Christian faith and testimony, he himself is enduring in the last week of his life. Now, listen to this. This is so important as I'm trying to unpack this today. D.A. Carson says this. This final beatitude becomes one of the most searching of them all and binds up the rest. For if the disciple of Jesus never experiences any persecution at all, it may be fairly asked where righteousness is being displayed in his life if there is no righteousness no conformity to god's will how shall he enter the kingdom now the 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 point isn't that i get into the kingdom by enduring persecution the point is that the evidence of my being in the kingdom is a righteousness of lifestyle that produces persecution in the culture now i want to draw here the first of two contrasts from verse 10 and 11 and let me read them again Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And verse 11, blessed are you when, you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 10, for righteousness' sake. Verse 11, on my account. Please note that and let me give you this life lesson. We cannot have righteousness without Christ, and we do not have Christ without righteousness. The person who says, I'm a believer in Christ, but has no fruit, no evidence whatsoever of that, has to ask themselves, Am I a true believer? Where is the proof? Now, I know we live in a culture that has lost its mind and subjective feelings have become more important than anything else. The way I feel about something is all I need to say. But friends, it doesn't work that way as a Christian. You cannot simply say, I am a believer and not have any evidence in your life from that. Listen to what 1 John 2.29 says. If we know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness have been born of him. The person who's living the life of Christ. Again, chapter 3, verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, as God defines it, by the way, and we'll come back to that, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. That is, when I have a true confession of faith, I live out the principles of these other beatitudes, and it shows up in my life. And it is that evidence that evokes the wrath and the displeasure of society. Now, we need to talk about this morning. This is so very balanced, and I want to come to the end And so stay with me. There's several, this is like all the other aspects of Scripture. You've got these layers and different facets, and it's not possible to always bring them in. But I want you to hear what William Barclay says about this text about the persecution that Jesus describes as inevitable, that there's no way around it. And here's what William Barclay said. There remains only one question to ask. Why is this persecution so inevitable? Now listen, children. It is inevitable because when the church, because the church, when it really is the church, is bound to be the conscience of the nation and the conscience of society. Where there is good, the church must praise. And where there is evil, the church must condemn. And inevitably, men will try to silence the troublesome voice of conscience. I tried to get that on the sign. Uh, Ronnie had a real challenge because I had to reword it and I didn't realize it almost didn't fit. But isn't this the case? They will try to silence the troublesome voice of conscience. Now, listen, he says, it is not the duty of the individual Christian habitually to find fault to criticize, or to condemn. But it may well be that his every action is a silent condemnation of the unchristian lives of others, and he will not escape their hatred. What does he mean? He means that I do not have to go out and wave a banner and say, "I look at me, I'm so much better than you. But the fact is that as I live out my Christian life, somebody will note that I'm not exactly like everybody else in the room. You don't have to put on a banner or a shirt or wear something that says, look at me. But if you're living the Christian life, somebody's going to see that. Even in, the, even in the very quiet, and I would suggest to you, as I have, uh, there's very, very, really, very little place to hide in 21st century America. Because of this connection, or because of this truth of what Jesus says, righteousness produces persecution, it is therefore impossible to overlook the connection between the previous Beatitudes. When you read that passage, he is righteous. How would we define that in a pursuit of these other Beatitudes? And Jesus says the result is, as I build my life on these Beatitudes, the result is, that I might incur the culture's displeasure. James Montgomery Boyce says, these verses conclude the list of statements that delineate the Christian's character, and the natural implication is that the one who lives like this will be persecuted. I love you, but if you're looking for a Christianity that spares you, you are not going to find it. Now, by the way, as you know, this is not the first time that Jesus warns the disciples about this. In fact, it's repeated throughout the Bible. But look at the, again at the contrast with Luke chapter 6, verse 22, which is Luke's version of the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Jesus lays it out. Children, without diminishing the the, the truth or the balance of of all the hopefulness that's in Christ, there is this certain aspect that you cannot escape, that to live for Christ is to live with the crosshair of the world on your back. Listen to John 15. I'll read this because it's bit lengthy verse 18 through 20 if the world hates you know that it has hated me first there really is an aspect where it's not personal it isn't you they hate it's who lives in you that they hate he says if you were of the world the world would love you as its own but because you are not of the world, that you're living differently from them. And I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now stay with me and uh, to the end. I want you to notice two things here. Uh, that this passage in John has connection to the, to the uh, Beatitudes. First, it is that Jesus speaks the same thing about persecution there. And this passage in John 15 happens at the Last Supper. Now, please get that. So in the Beatitudes, we're at the beginning of his ministry. And in chapter 15, we're at the end of his ministry. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus highlights at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry that the world's opinion of him, despite his many miracles, is unchanged. They nail him to the cross because they hate his message. We had the privilege of going to the pregnancy center dinner uh, Friday night, and uh, the speaker was very animated. And I had nothing, no, no criticism of, of her in general, but she made a statement that was absolutely true and absolutely subject to distortion. She said, I'm pro-life and pro-love. Now, I hope you can see that that phrase, pro-love, is open to so many distortions. Because just a few years ago, as we were dealing with the idea of homosexuals being able to get married, the mantra was, well, it's love. Love is love. Pro, I'm pro-love. And the, the problem with it is, not, not again to, to diminish her, but to use it as an illustration of the phrase pro-love, is that we have the idea, if we just pronounce and predict and, and, and show enough of God's love, people will respond. But this is not what the Scripture says about Christ. There was not a more loving person in the history of humankind. He is God, and God is love. And despite that love, they hated Him. We always quote John three sixteen: God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish. And we love that verse, and it is true, and it's biblical, and we hold it forth. But we don't read the rest of the text. Because in verse 18, Jesus says this, Whoever believes in Jesus, in the Son, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment This is the basis of the condemnation. Light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In other words, the love of God highlights sin in our lives. It says to us, if you want to experience my love and you want to know my love, then let the light shine on your darkness and let it sever you from that darkness so that you can live forever with me. You see, friend, somebody said that the same sun that melts snow hardens clay. The same God who turns men's heart to Him, that same message turns others into rebels and they become more hard and harsh towards the things of God. Listen to this passage from Romans. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, 2nd edition, because it puts it in just such an everyday uh, grammar, but I, I remind you that no one translation is better than another. You must glean them all in consistency with the original languages. But just listen to how it's, it's, it's uh, expressed here. That's John chapter 3, verse 18-19. I got ahead of myself. Listen to what Paul says. Paul shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Notice Paul does not say they're ignorant of the truth. He does not say they're misinformed about the truth. He says they know the truth and they do not like it, so they try to quash it. He goes on to say, they know the truth about God because He has made it obvious to them. Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but would not worship Him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming, this is the most prophetic passage in all of the scripture, as far as I'm concerned for this moment of time, claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Did you see the story this week? Now, I'm going to say up front, full disclosure, I am not a scientist. But I don't know if you saw the story this week. I'm talking about in mainstream publications. They discovered that mushrooms can communicate with other mushrooms. I'm not making that up. I don't know how they discovered it. And one, one story went so far as to say that they are capable of a more complex communication than even humans. Who knew? <laughs> Usually I go through my woods, and there's a mushroom, I just kick it. <laughs> now I might have to ask, you know what? We're going to have a another group on the social calendar. We have the people for the ethical treatment of animals. Now we will have the people for the ethical treatment of mushrooms. (laughs) There goes my favorite pizza out the door. (laughs) Now the greater message is, why do I need to know that mushrooms can communicate with each other? We live in a world where people are talking past each other all the time, We can't communicate because everybody's hearing something other than what we're saying, and the answer to it all is talking mushrooms. (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm not trying to be facetious here, but how can you not? This was reported. Now here's the greater point. Every day, I mean every day, there is a story about some kind of scientific discovery that has corrected some previous scientific discovery, or this new discovery. And every one of those discoveries proves how complex the universe is. And yet men persist in the viewpoint that it's all accidental. Just a random chance that occurred professing themselves to be wise, they became fools because they choose to see something other than the truth. You see, children, what we're dealing with here is very important. And I, I have this, I think, I don't have it. There's an item on your outline that says, it is a hatred which blinds people to reason. Now, we call our church Reasoning Tree because we believe in reasoning with people. Jesus reasoned with people. Isaiah 118 says, Come, let us reason, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Jesus reasoned with Nicodemus. Jesus pled, if that's the right phrase, with the Pharisees and said, Please, look at what I'm doing if you won't believe me. Believe what I'm doing as proof that I'm the Messiah. But friends, reason alone will not bring a person to Christ. God may use our reasoning, and that's why we should never dismiss it as important. But many times the reasoning just drives people to more rejection and resistance to truth. Now let me give you just a moment the scripture from John, which comes from the story of Jesus raising Lazarus which is just before the triumphal entry. The scripture tells us in the book of John that Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick and he stayed two days where he was. Now, as the story goes on, it's revealed to us that Lazarus was already dead. He had been dead for the two days that it took to get word to Jesus. And Jesus says, Lazarus is sleeping. And they thought he was taking a nap and Jesus said, no, no, he's dead. And he stays there two days, and he takes two days to travel back to Jerusalem. Four days. The guy's been dead for four days. Now here's the significance of that. Because in Jewish thinking and teaching of the time, there was the belief that the soul came back to the body for three days. And here's how the word biblical commentary uh, describes it, quoting this other writer whose name I could not pronounce. And it says this, the whole strength of mourning is not till the third day. For three days, the soul returns to the grave, thinking it will return into the body. When, however, it sees the color of its face has changed, when it becomes clear that the body is dead, dead, the soul goes away. Now, I'm not saying that's what happens. I'm saying that's what the Jewish people believe. And so Jesus waits till the fourth day. So nobody can say, oh, this was a natural thing. Of course, the soul comes back for three days, he waits till the fourth day. And what do the people do? In John chapter 11, verse 47. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? This man performs many signs. And then you go down to verse 57, 53 in the text, and it says, From that day on they made plans to kill him. He has done this miracle that defies their own theology. He's brought back someone from the dead who's been dead for four days. Everybody protests. Even his sister says he smells bad by now. Don't open that tomb. I don't have it on the outline today, but if you read the, the story, you'll find that they, then they started deciding try to, how to try to kill Lazarus as well. We're going to get rid of the evidence. This is the man. This is the man who stands at the tomb of Lazarus weeping. And they hate him so much that they kill him. And then when you jump to chapter 12, verse 37... After the triumphal entry, we read this, though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. Can I remind you, friends, in our second life lesson, miracles may be the means by which God calls people to Himself. The means is underlined. You can hardly see it, or I can hardly see it Anyway. But without God's calling, the miracle produces nothing. This is where the world gets it wrong. This is where churches get it wrong. Let's just talk about miracles all the time. That'll get people saved. Not without God's calling. He might use the miracle, but the miracle doesn't do it. It's God's calling that does it. You see this right here in this text, don't you? They saw this incredible miracle and they said, we're not going to believe in him. I read a meme, I think it was this week, and I don't know word for word, but it said the worst consequence of our sin is the possibility that God would turn us over to a reprobate mind. Because from there, there is no coming back. For all the people that you and I know who say one day, eventually, after a while, I'll get this one problem solved and now I'm going to give my heart to Christ. This is the day of salvation. This is the moment when you and I must make a decision about whether we will follow Him or follow our crooked hearts into the madness of the world. Now I want to come to something else. Life lesson number three. It is impossible to have godly persecution without righteousness. Now i got to start with godly persecution. What do you mean by godly persecution? I mean that throughout the world people are persecuted for their faith. The Baha'i religion, the headquarters of the Baha'i religion, even though Baha'i is an offspring of Islam, the the, the headquarters of the Baha'i religion is in Israel because they're persecuted in, in Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia and anywhere else where Islam is the main character. We've all followed the news and heard about the the uh, the uh, 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 Chinese, the Uyghurs, the Uyghur Muslims in China who are being persecuted for their faith. The Jews have been persecuted for their faith throughout cent- the centuries. We have in India the the Sikhs and the Muslims and the Hindus are persecuting each other. The so one Jesus says. You'll be persecuted for righteousness' sake. He's here obviously talking about a different kind of persecution, isn't he? What we have today is we have a lot of false teachers on the horizon. And a false teacher is the simplest definition. And we have to be careful here. And we'll be very careful between a false teacher and somebody who's wrong about something. Because all of us can be wrong about something. Okay, a, We have to be careful we make a distinction there between just being wrong on a particular point. We might not even know we're wrong about it and being false, saying something that is just outside the pale of Scripture. But there are many false teachers out there teaching false things, and when you criticize their teaching, when you demonstrate it is wrong biblically, they accuse you of persecuting them. And they would point to that Scripture. Well, Jesus said we're going to be persecuted. People are going to speak evil of us. Go ahead and mock me. Go ahead and mock my teaching. Go ahead and mock my lifestyle. Go ahead and mock... Because Jesus said I was going to be persecuted. Jesus said you would be persecuted for your righteousness. Living out the Word of God, not because you're teaching something wrong. We know of situations where pastors have gotten in trouble and they blame it. And when I say trouble, they break the law or they have a relationship with a woman they're not supposed to have a relationship with. And they say, when people push back, well, I'm being persecuted. I'm being persecuted. This is a persecution. No, that's consequences for your stupid decisions. Persecution comes because you're standing for Christ. I like the way Barclay said that at the beginning. And I have to come back to this. Again, in in, in verse 10 and 11, Jesus says, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when all these things happen on my account. You can't separate Christ's righteousness from persecution. But we are called to not live in such a way that people... There's so many layers here that you have to be careful. We are not supposed to live our lives in a way that people can make fair, accurate criticisms of our lives in those areas where we're contrary to the Bible. And I, I emphasize that because everybody, all of us in the room know there are people who are spiteful and they'll say things about you and many times they'll make things up about you. We've all experienced that. It's from childhood to adulthood where people say mean things about you. We all know that happens. And we want to be careful because some people, as you know, people will look at that and say, well, they're persecuting me. No, they're not. You're not living for Christ. This, they just don't like you. That happens in the real world. Anybody in the room thinks everybody on the planet is supposed to like you are in trouble. Nobody's going to do that. Stay in the moment, Pastor. Don't drift back to the beautiful music of the 60s and 70s and all the moral messages contained therein. Smiling faces. I'm going to do it anyway. Smiling faces tell lies. Sometimes people are out to get you, and, it's, and they just don't like you, and, and their, their opposition to you might be you and not your righteousness. And so we must be careful to make sure that when we are pointing to persecution and saying, hey, that proves I'm a Christian because I'm being persecuted, you better have the righteous living that produces it and not just an attitude that somehow people don't like you, which may be true. Jesus says you will suffer persecution on my account, your identification with me. Now, I had this written down someplace, I thought. Children, now we want to pause and have just a moment of reflection about the importance of church. Because if your church is striving to be what God has called us to be, then your church will be persecuted we have this sign and people all the time telling us i saw some people at the dinner the other night and they said we read your piece in the paper every time it's in there and we love the sign messages well thank you but there have been a few times people didn't like the message on the sign we really had them going we had the whole county going we got word that people were having bible studies one time and they were they were talking about our church sign because i said on the sign we said we murdered god and orphaned ourselves now i didn't make that up i got it out of a book but it's true if jesus was god we murdered god god and in our culture's madness to do away with God, we do not realize we orphan ourselves when we do away with God. Absolutely nothing theologically wrong with the statement. But boy, it stirred up some. So now, and, then, I, and then, then there was the one that hate is not a four-letter word. The girl called me up one day, and she said, you're an idiot, aren't you? Hate is literally a four-letter word. My point was, it's not a cuss word. It's not a bad word. There are some things you should hate. You that love the Lord, hate evil. That's the scripture. She called up, gave me a few choice phrases, hung up. I thought we got cut off. Phone rang again. I answered it. She said, I'm going to come up here and put a sign in your church that says, in your churchyard that says this bunch of idiots because they don't know how to spell hate is a four-letter word. Now imagine now, imagine, so your pastor, you'll you just have to uh, pray for me if you think we're a little too extreme on some of our sign messages. We are supposed to speak to the culture, and we have a ready instrument that hundreds of people see every day. But suppose you encounter someone, and you're telling them where you go to church, and they say to you, oh, is that the church with the sign? And your spirit lights up, and then they say, boy, you all have a lot of nerve, don't you? The kind of stuff you put on that sign. So you see, you're being persecuted. You didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't make the sign list. I didn't put the message on the sign. And they're mad at me. They're mad at you because you belong to a community that has pledged itself to stand for God in a dark world. Amen. Listen to what Peter says. I've got I to get along with this. Peter says, 1 Peter 4 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Meddlers. Boy, I love meddlers. Don't suffer because of that. He says don't make the confusion because if you go to those passages and you read it, he's talking about rejoicing in trial. He's talking about don't be surprised by the battles and the persecution and the harsh treatment you get. But make sure it's not coming because you're living a life which contradicts Christian faith. Make sure you're suffering because you're living a life that conforms to the Christian message. Don't look at your persecution those of you who have suffered it, or are suffering it, or will, so don't look at it and say, well, this proves I'm a Christian. No, the life of righteousness proves you're a Christian. Now, I have to point this out, because a lot of times we're sitting in a church like this, and we talk about persecution, and we shrug, because I'm not being tied to a stake, or having lost my job, or or any of that so we want to understand the persecution and this is where verse 11 really brings it out well he says blessed are you when people revile you when they utter all kinds of evil you see there's overt persecution where they argue with you or maybe you lose your job or maybe you won't get a promotion because you're staying on christian things How many of us say, I can't take that stand because I'll lose my job or I'll lose my friends or I'll lose this or I'll lose that? And may I ask you, what will be your excuse when they come for your soul? How will you push that away and say, well, This isn't a new problem, by the way. You might think it's 21st century America where this is a problem. No, no. Because this week I read, as I was preparing for these things, Tertullian, who lived a long time ago. I don't have it in my memory exactly when he died or lived, but it was the second or third century. And somebody said to Tertullian about living righteously. They said, yes, but I have to make a living. And he said, which is more important? Your living or your loyalty. So there is that kind of overt overt persecution. It's in your face. You're, you're being threatened with the loss of your job, and you're, sorry, Jessica. You're, you're being lo- threatened with the loss of your job, and maybe family members. I had a friend I used to work with, 40 years ago when me and Lisa first got married his name was Martin Shiflet. and Martin and I were talking one day about giving his heart to God and this is what he said to me my wife would leave me if I did that and just a few short months later she left him anyway what will you what will you hang on to when they come for your soul There is that kind of overt persecution. But by and large, most of us deal with the covert kind. It's a whisper. It's an insinuation. It is a lie. It is an exclusion. No longer invited to this or invited to that because they're one of those people. And you feel hurt. You feel you feel hurt because you've been misrepresented. They're not, they're not talking about you. They're talking about something you believe on the authority of Scripture, and yet you're hurt by it. Nobody likes to be alone, rejected. But we must remember in that moment we haven't been rejected by the one who really matters. Whoever the Father gives to me, all the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. David says in the Psalms, when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will lift me up. And in that text, it's it's David as an infant. It's like an infant as little Hayden, totally helpless, abandoned by mother and father. And he says, the Lord will lift me up. This is why at the end of the text, and I close with this, Jesus says, rejoice. Because people hate me? Rejoice because I'm going through bad things? No. Rejoice because your reward in heaven is great. Rejoice, because they cannot take from you the ultimate thing, which is your eternal soul, kept in the hands of God, where Jesus says, and John, no one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. But, but the, the image is, he says, no one can pluck them out of my hand. And then he says, my Father's hand is greater than all, and no one can pluck them out of his hand. A double grip. Do you see it? And so we hurt, we, we deal with things. Nobody likes to be criticized unfairly. Nobody likes to be beaten. Nobody likes to lose things that we've worked hard to gain. But he calls us to realize with Christ we never lose anything. Our life is hid with Christ in God. Amen? Let us pray and and I'm going to ask Pam on praying to open this up because the praise team needs to get their communion elements as well. Oh God, thank you for your word and for.